You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. If you had one day to live, how would you spend your final moments? Would you do something that you always wanted to do, skydiving or bungee jumping, you know, you'd finally do it. You'd finally check off that item from the bucket list. Uh, Would you spend a bunch of money? Would you eat, drink, and be merry? You know, add the guacamole to the burrito bowl. Who cares? (laughs) My guess is many of us wouldn't spend our final moments the same way we spend our average moments. We probably wouldn't spend as much time staring at our phones and scrolling through social media. We probably wouldn't spend our final moments watching Netflix, I would guess. Maybe you would spend your final moments with your loved ones. Maybe have a last meal with them. And I ask that question because Jesus, unlike maybe many of us, he knew the exact moment that he would die. And uh, today, we are going to be looking at how Jesus spent his final moments before he was arrested. Jesus spent his final moments in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And even if you are familiar with the story, uh, I would ask that you hear the scripture today with fresh ears. I think sometimes, if you, especially if you've grown up in church, maybe you've, uh, you've experienced a lot of Easter's in church, and you know the story. Jesus died, he rose again, the, the, the Easter story, right? Uh, it can be so commonplace for us that we sometimes take it for granted. And yet, I think there's always more that we can look at and go deeper in our understanding of the gospel. Uh, I think about Jesus' own disciples. Uh, he, wasn't, he, he didn't keep it a secret from them what he would suffer. In fact, numerous times he tells them, this is why we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered over to the high priest. I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise from the grave. The third time that Jesus predicted this in Luke 18, this is what the the disciples, how they responded in Luke 18, 34. But they understood how much? None of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, they they heard what he said, but they didn't really understand it. They didn't grasp what he said, but he couldn't be any more clear. I mean, if you want to read Luke 18, he tells them, I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be given to the Gentiles. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. And I wonder how much we hear the gospel, but we don't always grasp what's going on. We don't always understand the significance. And so today, as we focus on the Garden of Gethsemane, my prayer would be whether you've been in church your whole life or whether today is maybe one of your very first times in church, that we would grasp the gospel, that we would understand the significance specifically of the suffering and the death that Jesus died on the cross. If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew 26, We're in a teaching series called Gardens. We're exploring the gospel through four significant gardens in scripture. Last week was the Garden of Eden. Today, the Garden of Gethsemane. If it helps you, we actually have one of the stained glass above the choir area is a depiction 
of the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you get a little bored listening to the sermon, just look over there. You can see Jesus. You can actually see, if you look closely, maybe some of you in the balcony can see, you can see Peter, James, and John there with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Let's read the text. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is shocking to hear these words come out of the mouth of Jesus. I want to show you a picture of Gethsemane. Uh, Gethsemane is one of those Bible places that we actually know where it is. This is Gethsemane. Uh, The word Gethsemane means oil press. Uh, It's across the Kidron Valley near the Mount of Olives, and it was likely a private olive grove, uh, and uh, Jesus, for some reason, had permission. Either that or he, tra- he, tra- he was trespassing, but he-, he likely had permission. Perhaps the owner of this private olive grove was a disciple. Maybe he was at least curious and gave Jesus special permission. And the apostle John, when he records the Garden of Gethsemane, which is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he records that Jesus, when he was near Jerusalem, often went to Gethsemane. So this is not a new location. This is not a new place. And he often brought his disciples there. Likely, this was one of Jesus's go-to places of prayer. Maybe a term you might be familiar with, a prayer closet. We get that imagery from, uh, from Daniel, right, who went in that secret place and continuously, he, he went there often to pray. Now, this isn't quite the main point of the text, but I just want to encourage us with a practice right here from the beginning, find consistent places of prayer. Find consistent places of prayer, Uh, We all know that in life, there are moments where life seems to be going great, moments where joy comes naturally, and there's moments of deep anguish and suffering. And Jesus is found in Gethsemane at both. He doesn't run to this place uh, that's new to him. He goes to a place that's familiar. He goes to the place where he often went with his disciples to pray. And for you, I would just ask you, do you have that place? Do you have places like that? It doesn't have to be an olive grove. It doesn't have to even be outside. It could be a chair in your house. It could be your car. Uh, For me, I, I don't know what it is, but I pray really well when I'm road biking. It's like when I'm commuting to work on a bike. And, and we need those consistent places of prayer because the reality is, That it's that connection and proximity to to Jesus, it's that connection to God that actually sustains us, not just through the good times in life, but also through the valley of the shadow of death. And here in this moment, Jesus chooses to go to this familiar place of prayer as he faces unfamiliar suffering, uncharted territory, as we'll explore today suffering that no one before him and no one since would ever have to face 
again. And what's different about Jesus in this moment, when he's on his face, he's praying, he's, he's even asking his disciples to pray with him and pray for him in this moment, is that this is not just a man who knows he's about to die. This is not even a man who knows he's about to die very painfully, or even a man who knows he's about to die very painfully for a cause for someone else. Jesus is not a martyr in this moment. And I think for us to fully grasp what's going on, we have to ask the question, who is Jesus? Because if we don't understand who's speaking this prayer, we won't really understand the gravity of this prayer. Take this cup from me. Who is Jesus? Three important things if you're taking notes. The first thing we need to know about Jesus is Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. That word Messiah in Hebrew or the word Christos, Christ in Greek, they're synonyms. They both mean anointed one and it's a title for a king, right? Do you remember when King David, before he became the king, Samuel brought the horn of oil and he anointed him, right? So it's a way of signifying this is a king. And last week we looked at the Garden of Eden and no sooner did mankind fall into sin than God spoke this word of hope in Genesis 3.15. This is the, the, the very first promise. I will put enmity between you, speaking of uh, the enemy and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the very first promise that we have from the opening pages of scripture that someone is coming. That's the Messiah who we're talking about. And throughout the Old Testament, it would be more and more clear uh, who this person would be. He would come from uh, the lineage of Abraham. He'd come from the tribe of Judah. He would be, be from the royal lineage of King David. It's no surprise to us that Matthew, when he begins his gospel, begins with a genealogy. Now, let me tell you, he doesn't begin with a genealogy because genealogies are interesting. He's not like, you know what would be a great intro to, my, to, to the gospel? Let's start off with names. And this person is the son of this person is the son of this person. But this is how he ends it. In Matthew 1.16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ or Messiah. That's the point that he's making. He, he, he's tracing this promised person, this savior, someone who would come to save us from our sins. Luke also includes a genealogy, tracing it through the lineage of Mary. And Luke actually goes all the way back to Adam, trying to make this connection that this was part of the plan throughout all of human history. Someone is coming. Messiah is coming. The Christ is coming. That's why I don't just say he's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited the highly anticipated Messiah, the, the king who would come. It's the first thing we need to know. And he's asking for the cup to be taken from him. It's significant. Number two, the second thing we need to know about Jesus is he's the son of God. He's the son of God. This is not just a human person. Uh, the son of God, or some titles even the son of man, which essentially mean the same thing. It means that Jesus was not an ordinary guy. I think about uh, the baptism of Jesus from Matthew chapter three. Uh, we see this beautiful moment where Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And then in Matthew three seventeen, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved 
Son, with a capital S. Jesus is the son of God in a different way than we are sons and daughters of God, right? He is the, the son of God. And in that moment, you see this Trinitarian formula. You see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all there in the same moment. And we see something very similar to this later on in Matthew, not at the Mount of Olives, but actually at Mount Tabor in Matthew 17. It's called the Transfiguration. Jesus takes the same three, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain to pray. And it's quite a contrast to the Garden of Gethsemane. If Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is anguish and just on his face and just facing the, the, the full effect of the suffering in his humanity, there on Mount Tabor in Matthew 17, something quite different happens. It's called the transfiguration where Jesus, all of a sudden, his glory is radiating out of him. And there's a cloud. You, you remember the Shekinah glory of God that would fill the Holy of Holies? There's this light and there's this cloud. It's no surprise that that's happening to Jesus, the Son of God. And then all of a sudden, Moses, representing the law, and Elijah, representing the prophets, are both there encouraging Jesus and speaking with Jesus. And Peter, as he always does, says something stupid. And... <laughs> He's like, let's, let's stay here on the mountain, and I've got, you know, let's set up some tents. And then, then all of a sudden, similar to the baptism of Jesus in, in the transfiguration, Matthew 17, this happens. And he was still speaking, that's Peter. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God is telling us this Messiah is not just a, another prophet who would come or even another powerful prophet who would come. This is the Son of God, preexistent person of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he's praying and saying, if it's possible, take this cup for me. The third thing we need to know about Jesus is he's not just the son of God, he's God in flesh. This is a theology called the incarnation, and if it's difficult for you to understand, join the club. <laughs> How can someone be fully God, and fully man? This is what many of the heresies that are being spoken against in the New Testament letters are spoken against people who got this wrong and were teaching something other than the incarnation. Many of the early church councils were addressing this very issue. It's this idea that that Jesus was not just God, but he was God in flesh. He actually was a person. Matthew chapter one, verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What we don't always realize is Matthew 1.23, speaking of the nativity and, 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 uh, and you know, Christmas and the birth narrative, this is actually a quote from Isaiah 7.14, hundreds of years earlier. It's a quote from one of those prophecies in the Old Testament. And this affirms both Jesus is the son of God and the seed of, you remember Genesis 3.15, the seed of woman. He's both heavenly and human. He's divine, and he has flesh and blood. 
John, when he writes his gospel, he gives this title, The Word to Jesus, with a capital W. And in John 1.14, this is how the apostle John describes it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so we have the Son of God in flesh. And in Gethsemane, it's, it's not hard for us to see that he's in flesh because he's in pain. He's in anguish. The suffering of Golgotha began at Gethsemane. It's a staggering display of Christ's humanity. In Luke's version, Luke was a doctor, medical doctor. He records that Jesus was not just a little bit troubled, but he was so deeply troubled that there was blood pouring out of the pores on his forehead. Uh, this is a medical condition called uh, hematidrosis, and that's not a Greek word, so I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation, uh, but it's where the, the capillaries in your forehead actually burst due to the sheer amount of stress that you're experiencing. The words deeply sorrowful, hardly get the idea across to us. I mean, he's pouring out his wretched soul to his Father in heaven. This is the only time where we see Jesus prostrate on the ground on his face. Do you realize that? You see other moments where people are like that before him. This is the only time where Jesus is sprawled out begging his Father, please take this cup from me if it's Possible. He knows what's coming. This prayer almost seems unbiblical, doesn't it? And yet Jesus, is, is, his soul is torn from him in the garden of Gethsemane. Another, another side note. Again, this is not quite the main point of the passage, but I think so important for us to recognize that Jesus sympathizes with your suffering. The author of Hebrews says that, that we don't have a high priest who can't relate. We have a high priest who can relate to us. In all of our weaknesses, he sympathizes with us. That means he suffers with us in the ways that we suffer. Do you realize God gets you? He gets you. He understands your pain. And I, and I don't know exactly what pain you've experienced in your life up until today, or maybe what pain you're experiencing today what you're grieving through, what you're dealing with today. Uh, maybe you've had those moments where you've been face down on the ground, just in deep anguish, pouring out your wretched soul to your father. I don't know about you, I've had moments like that in my life. I've never had a moment where blood was pouring from my forehead because the stress was so, was so severe. This is suffering like no other human being has ever suffered. And Jesus did this because he loves you. He loves you, and he prays this line, if it's possible. Mark records him saying the line like this, I know anything is possible for you, God, but would you let this cup pass from me? And it really begs an interesting question. Was there another way? Was there another way? I mean, that seems to be what Jesus is asking, is it not? If there's any other way for mankind to be made right before God, to be reconciled to God, for sin, death, and the devil to be defeated, could we do plan B? It seems to be what he's saying. 
And so I think for us to fully grasp the gravity of Gethsemane, we don't just need to understand the question, who is Jesus? We need to ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And while it might uh, be fun to argue hypothetically, could God have constructed another plan of salvation, a different way to redeem humanity? I think the fact that God did not grant Jesus this request, do you realize that? If you ever feel like you struggle with unanswered prayer, this is like the unanswered prayer of Jesus to ask the Father to spare him from what he's about to face. The fact that God did not give him another way, I think that answers the question, that this is the way. This is the plan of redemption as uh, Paul in Ephesians 1 verse four talks about we were chosen in him before the foundation of the earth. Well, how can we be chosen to be in Christ before the foundation of the earth if the plan of redemption was not formed before the foundation of the earth. In in Romans, uh, what we find is that time and time again, there's this line, when the time was right, when the time was right, this was a plan set in motion before we even understand the timeline of humanity and human existence. The author of Hebrews goes on to say this. In Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 9, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. I think he's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, to be, to be sure, His prayer was heard. It just wasn't answered. His petition was not granted. Jesus wasn't spared. He was given strength. He was given strength. In Luke's version, uh, Luke tells us that an angel was sent in that moment. In the darkest moment, Jesus had an angel there to minister to him, not to take the pain away, not to spare him from the cross and the suffering, but to minister and to strengthen. I wonder if that's a little bit of why Moses and Elijah were there on the Mount of Transfiguration, to encourage Jesus and remind him of the glory in the future. And so Jesus, in that Garden of Gethsemane, that frequent place of prayer, he pours out his soul to his Father. And we're so thankful that he didn't end the prayer with take this cup from me, but he prayed the rest of it. The second half of the prayer, not my will, but yours be done. And we can all just take a sigh of relief knowing that the fate of our very souls, the fate of humanity is hanging in the balance in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying that prayer. And whatever the angel ministers to him and whatever Jesus' own prayers and maybe the disciples' prayers for him, although it seemed a little bit more like they were just taking a nap the whole time, whatever happened in that garden, Jesus stands up and goes from there, and that would be the last moment there would be any wavering. He had steel resolve. From there, Judas would lead the soldiers to arrest Jesus. And Jesus didn't try and run. He didn't try and hide. He said, here I am. 
So much so that people fell backwards, that Jesus was, was there handing himself over to them. And the soldiers would take Jesus, and then they, they would put him on trial with the high priests. And that night, it was this totally, uh, totally false trial, false accusations, people blindfolding Jesus, hitting him, mocking him, spinning on him. And the only accusation that stuck is that this man is claiming to be the Son of God, which he was. And he would be handed over early, early the next morning to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who had the authority to execute. He had the authority of capital punishment. And from the very beginning, Pontius Pilate knew this was a bad deal. So he tried to pawn it off on Herod, who then sent Jesus back to him. And the whole time, Jesus is being humiliated and beaten further and a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe as if to say, here is your king. And then he's being flogged, and his body is just being torn apart by the brutal whips that the Roman soldiers would made, beaten within an inch of his life. And even when the crowd saw that, here is your king, hasn't he had enough? They still yelled, crucify him, crucify him, Crucify him, even when there was another criminal who should have died that day. And they had the option to set Jesus free or Barabbas free. They said, kill Jesus. So why would he do that? Still haven't answered the question. Why did Jesus have to die? I mean, if this is true, if he's the Messiah, if he's the son of God, if he's God in flesh, if he's perfect, if he's never sinned, none of that was his fault. None of that was for his sins. None of that was for his guilt. Here's why. Jesus drank the cup of judgment so that we wouldn't have to. He drank that bitter cup of judgment through his suffering on the cross, through his death so that we wouldn't have to, so that he might become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And I think it's important that we ask this question, what is the cup? I mean, that's what Jesus prays he would be spared from. If it's possible, would you take this cup from me? Uh, in John chapter 18, verse 11, when the soldiers came before Jesus, you know, all of us have a fight or flight instinct. Do you know that? Maybe, maybe you've identified which one you are. Some people want to run away when, it, kind of when adrenaline takes over, and some people fight. And uh, apparently, Peter was a fight guy, because when the soldiers came, he pulled out his sword, and he sliced a guy's ear off, a uh, high priest servant. His name was Malchus. And in John 18, verse 11, Jesus stops him. He actually heals the man's ear. Imagine healing the very person who's arresting you. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And cup might be a way of just referring to death. Shall I not die? But I think it's so much more than that. I mean, when James and John, their mother, were, was asking Jesus if they could sit at his right and his left, he turns around and says to them, can you drink the same cup that I'm going to drink? And they say yes, because they don't understand the cup that Jesus is actually going to face. And Jesus kind of says, well, I mean, in some ways you will. You will suffer. 
but not in the same way that I will suffer. You will die, but it's not gonna be the same kind of death that I'm going to die. The, the cup that Jesus would face, I believe, is not just his death on the cross. I think it also has to do with the judgment for the sins of the world. If you read through the Old Testament, this metaphor, this symbol of cup, is one of the most common symbols for God's wrath against sin and evil. Last week, looking at the Garden of Eden, we talked about God uh, is the creator, God is good, and the third one is God is holy. That means sin cannot really exist in his holy presence. And so God's wrath, his judgment, is his righteous response to sin and evil. In Psalm 75, verse 8, here's an example from the Old Testament. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. I know those are uncomfortable passages for us to read, and yet we, can, we just have to acknowledge, if that's who God is, that's who he is. That's his righteous response to the sin and the evil and the corruption in the world and even in our very lives. And when we think about God, the, the almighty, all-powerful creator of the heavens and the earth, pouring out wrath and judgment, what we have to understand is that's actually what we deserve. We deserve to drink God's wrath and judgment down to the dregs. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and what Jesus is doing on the cross, it's not some accidental death. It's not some un, uh, unfortunate circumstance. Oh no, what's he doing up there? He's very much in control every step of the way. And I think we see this most clearly in Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was a darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So three hours of darkness. And I'm talking like, absolute, not just it's a little cloudy, a little overcast, like you would, you would look up and say, what is going, like cosmologically, what is happening? There's this darkness. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever read that and asked the question, what is going on? There's, there's, there's something more going on. The universe, is, there's like a rift going on. It, for three hours, Jesus is hanging there, and he's already suffered an incredible amount physically, but I think what's happening is this relational separation from the Father. It's this pouring out of wrath. It's this Jesus taking in his body on the tree, as Peter would write later, the sins of the world, bearing them on the cross, Maybe one of the best descriptions of what took place here is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The apostle Paul says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I believe for those three hours, what Jesus is experiencing is taking on the guilt, the shame of our sins, the sins of the world in his body on the cross and experiencing God's wrath and judgment and separation. Who is Jesus? The son of God? 
and he's experiencing what we deserved in that moment, Jesus cries out those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And maybe for you, you felt like God wasn't there for you. You felt forsaken from God. But we have to acknowledge that Jesus actually was forsaken by God on the cross so that we would never have to be. That's why Jesus did it. That's why Jesus had to die, so that all of us would not have to face God on our own account, on our own merit, on our own goodness, having paid the penalty of our own sin, of our own death, but that Jesus would be able to pay for our sins on the cross. God loves you that much. And I know that the gospel is more than just the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Jesus, three days later, rose from the grave. And that's incredibly significant. Guess what next Sunday is? Easter Sunday. We'll talk about that next Sunday. <laughs> the resurrection is powerful. And without the resurrection, none of this even makes any sense. And yet, I wonder how often, especially in the modern American church, we kind of rush past Gethsemane. We rush past the suffering. We rush past the three hours of darkness. We rush past he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he did it. And so today, as we look at Gethsemane, the suffering, the anguish, the judgment, the wrath, I want us to remember the cup that Jesus drank that cup so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus faced that so that we could be made right with God. And if you've never responded to the gospel, today can be the day that you ask God to forgive your sins, not on your own account, not on your own righteousness or your own goodness, not because you have you know, a magic eraser that you can scrub away your own sins, but you can ask God, you can come before God today and ask God to forgive your sins on account of what Jesus did for you. On account of Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, suffering and dying for your sins and mine on the cross. And you can ask God to forgive your sin today and lead your life. I just wanna invite you to respond to the gospel in that way. But I love what the author of Hebrews says, uh, writing specifically about the Garden of Gethsemane, that he was obedient in that point. As a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered so that he might become eternal salvation for all of those who are obedient to who? To him. Jesus was obedient to this eternal plan of salvation, even when he, he's there and you can see the anguish in his eyes and the blood down his forehead. He was obedient to that at what, uh, knowing exactly what it would cost him. And so now when we put our faith in him, we're not talking about some cheap grace. We're not talking about some cheap uh, kind of faith that doesn't understand the cost of our salvation. We're not talking about, yeah, and if you just accept that that happened, then that's good enough. When we talk about faith in Jesus, we're talking about fully trusting him with your life. Another way of saying that is becoming obedient to him where he is now the king of your life, the Lord of your life. You trust him to forgive your sins, but you also trust him to lead your life. And one of those initial acts of obedience for us to take to put our faith in Jesus is just called baptism. It's the way Jesus instructed us to put our faith 
in him. And he instructed his followers before he ascended to go into all nations and and to do what? To get baptizing, to go and baptize people into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I would just encourage you, if you've never been baptized and you believe the gospel, to get baptized, to be obedient to what Jesus is asking you to do in that way. And if today is the day, especially if today is the day, the first time that you're asking God to forgive your sin and lead your life, for you to get baptized. And you, if you have questions, that's great. We wanna walk you alongside that process. There's a video online called Baptism 101 at hillcityboise.org baptism. Our next baptisms are April 24th. We already have a couple people signed up. Can we celebrate that? So two weeks, two weeks from today, we're gonna be celebrating people putting their faith in Jesus in that way. And I would just encourage you to sign up, to pray about it and to be obedient to Jesus in that way. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.